Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Welcome to today's episode in our Clinical Conversations podcast for the Royal College of Edinburgh podcast series. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Ewan Sandilands with us to talk about hypothermic toxidromes. Dr. Sandilands is a consultant in clinical toxicology and acute and general medicine at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. In 2012, he became a consultant with the National Poisons Information Service and took the role of director in 2016. He's also actively involved in medical education within the University of Edinburgh. So thank you so much for coming on today's podcast and chatting through this for our trainees to listen to. I guess in the first instance, what made you become interested and get into clinical toxicology? Thank you very much for inviting me to join today. I think it goes back to an interest in pharmacology when I was an undergraduate, and I was always interested in that sort of aspect, the kind of drug aspect, the pharmacology aspect, and the physiology aspect as I was going through training. And rather than being involved in an organ-based specialty, I liked the fact the pharmacology was kind of fluid throughout all specialties and just a general interest in drugs, I would say not for personal use, but more for the education and the use and the safe use around drugs. And then, of course, the kind of add on to that is the adverse effects and the unsafe use of drugs. And that's kind of how I got into toxicology in the first place. I've really enjoyed my time in tox. And I think now when I look back, I think actually tox is kind of important for every specialty. And so a knowledge of drugs, their safe use and their adverse effects is so important for whichever specialty you go into and for your future kind of safe management of patients. Absolutely. No, I think that's really important. And as a trainee, as a foundation year, IMT, specialty registrar, you're going to come across these problems the whole time on your day-to-day wards or acute take or on calls. So today's topic is talking about hypothermic toxidromes. Can you let the listeners know exactly kind of what that means? Yeah, so I mean, traditionally, toxicology was taught very much, certainly when I was learning, it was taught about, you know, you basically went through every individual drug, and these were the effects you would see. Obviously, with the explosion of particularly recreational drugs that are available on the street nowadays, you don't often know what patients will have taken. That may be because they're unconscious and unable to tell you, or it may be because they don't want to tell you, or you just may not have any history at all. So Teaching is switched really from recognizing specific drug effects to recognizing what we call toxidromes. And so a toxidrome is a constellation of symptoms or signs that would go together to try and tell you or give you clues to what family of drugs may be involved. So 
when I'm teaching a lot of students, medical students, they often say they've never heard of toxidromes before, but actually everybody's heard of toxidrome because everybody's very familiar with the most obvious ones like the opioid toxidrome, which of course is, you know, pinpoint pupils, hypotension, respiratory depression, which is a toxidrome. So that's the opioid toxidrome. So nowadays we teach very much along the view of toxidromes to try and give broad brushstrokes to management as opposed to drug-specific management. So the hyperpyrexial toxidromes, so temperature would generally be associated with the sympathomimetic agents or the serotonergic agents. And by that, generally think of stimulant-type drugs. So the amphetamine-based drugs like ecstasy, which is obviously one of the heaviest use recreationally drugs today. And generally speaking, any drug that's associated with a temperature is associated with a bad prognosis. So temperature is often thought of the worst prognostic indicator. So while I accept that a lot of our patients may have a temperature because they have a sepsis from an aspiration pneumonia or something like that, generally speaking, if a patient who's been exposed to drugs has a temperature, it's probably the drugs that are doing it And if it is a drug-related temperature, the prognosis is poor. It's poorer than without the temperature. And we need to try and get that temperature down as quickly as possible. So if you come across a patient, say you're clocking someone in or on the ward and you think they have either ingested some drugs or they're acting bizarrely, they've got an altered mental state, how do you go about, obviously we approach the patient in our A to E manner, but how do you go about assessing the patient and working out what to do and where to go? So obviously always adopt the AT assessment, but generally speaking, the patients that will have ingested the stimulant agents may be quite apparent from their behavior, as you've suggested, they might have agitated behavior or whatever. Often with these patients, though, they can seem quite agitated when they first come in and then have a significant drop in their GCS. That's not an uncommon pattern whereby they're quite stimulated and agitated initially, and then they just become more unconscious. Generally, you would go through everything as you would normally do for any other patient, bearing in mind things like hypoglycemia and metabolic disturbances are quite common in these types of patients. So be sure to make sure that the blood sugar, for example, is okay. If you detect a temperature, then clearly a temperature of any sort should be investigated in the normal way. But you would do that anyway with these types of patients. You would obviously have got a chest x-ray and you're going to do some bloods. The things to look out for generally with this group of patients are things that point you towards serotonergic toxicity, which is associated with the greatest morbidity and mortality. And the easiest way to think of that is the classic triad of three things. So with that, we have autonomic instability, And so that's what I'm talking about is the temperature. So the autonomic instability is the high temperature. We have altered mental state. And as you given your example, that's already they're either agitated or they're, you know, reduced GCS. That is an altered mental state. So that's two out of the three. And then the last one is hyperreactivity or hypotonicity. So they often are quite jerky or have a lot of myoclonus. And the most hard clinical sign that you can test for, that I often test for in all these patients, is clonus. And that's more obvious, the more peripheral you go. So if you think about the analogy of a dog wagging its tail, it sounds a bit strange, but bear with me. If the dog wags its tail, the, the tail is wagging the most at the tip of the tail, right at the very end. So if you think of that in the human, you just go straight to their ankles and flick their ankles. And if you get three or four beats of clonus would be considered normal. If someone is prescribed a serotonergic drug like an SSRI, they might have a few more beats of clonus. 
the patients that you're talking about in your example that are potentially at risk of serotonergic toxicity will have sustained clonus. So if you flick the ankle and it just keeps jerking, that is quite a hard sign for serotonergic toxicity. Traditionally, we've talked of serotonin syndrome. You'll have picked up that I'm talking about serotonergic toxicity. That's just a slight change in the lingo. It's all the same thing. Serotonin syndrome, serotonin toxicity, it's all the same thing. But the classic three things are temperature, clonus, and an alteration in your GCS. So those are the three things I would look for when you're assessing the patient. Bearing in mind all the usual stuff that you do, like a chest x-ray, like looking for low blood sugar and a normal cardiovascular, respiratory, abdominal examination. But those are the three key points that I would pick up on. So let's carry forward this serotonergic toxic patient that is in our acute medical bay. They've come in, they're a little bit agitated, but manageable. They do have a temperature and they do have evidence of clonus. We have taken some bloods off. They've got a chest x-ray. Someone's just going to get an ECG. Is there anything particular that we should be looking for on this ECG? ECGs are obviously very important for all these types of drugs. It's very difficult to give you a specific example for which type of drug you should be worried about which ECG. The thing that we're often told as toxicologists is as soon as you find it's a poisoned patient, all anybody wants to tell us about is the QT interval. People really focus on the QT interval. And I understand that there's been a lot of education around QT prolongation in drugs. What my kind of take home message would be, I suppose, is that not all drugs cause QT prolongation and don't get fixated on that at the exclusion of other potential abnormalities. Clearly, the most common abnormality in any of these patients is is simply sinus tachycardia. That's all you might get. It might just be very, very fast with the classic kind of serotonergic drugs. The SSRI type drugs like fluoxetine, paroxetine, citalopram, those types of drugs, they are all associated with QT prolongation. So yes, absolutely, there might be QT prolongation. So I'm not saying don't look out for it. All I'm saying is don't completely focus on it. If you take the other aspect of another recreational drug, for instance, a very common one, cocaine, cocaine is highly associated with, or is associated, sorry, with QRS prolongation rather than QT prolongation. So there are different abnormalities depending on the type of drug. But generally speaking, for toxicological interpretation of ECG, we look first and foremost whether it's in sinus rhythm, and then we look at the intervals. We concentrate much more on the intervals than the ST wave segments that you do in sort of general medical patients. And we really look at the QRS interval and the QT interval. And simplistically, from the QRS point of view, as long as it's narrow, we're happy. We don't mind. What we're really looking for is the widening of the QRS interval. If it is wide, then the treatment is sodium bicarbonate, high concentration, 8.4% sodium bicarbonate. And we would give that very much as a cause and effect. So you give it and then you repeat the ECG and look for that QRS narrowing and give more until you get the QRS narrowed. With the QT interval being prolonged, everyone hopefully is familiar with the QT nomogram, which is on top space, which gives you an indication of the risk of developing torsad, which is what the real worry is with these patients. If the QT interval is prolonged and gets longer and longer and is left untreated, there is a risk of developing a malignant arrhythmia such as torsad de point, which is obviously very serious and so we want to try and prevent that. If you do an ECG and you detect QT prolongation and you map it against the nomogram on top space and it's in the high risk area, 
then the treatment is magnesium sulfate. For ease of remembrance, it's the same dose as you give an asthmatic in the same sort of way, and you just give that, and that is cardioprotective. So it helps to prevent the patient developing torsad. But the biggest mistake that people often make with it is don't then do an ECG and expect the QT to be normal. It's not going to necessarily normalize the QT interval like the QRS bicarb story, but it will help to protect the patient. So simplistically, we look at the rate and then the QT and the QRS intervals in the way that I've suggested. And different drugs, that's where it's slightly tricky because a knowledge of different drugs will cause different effects. But the easiest thing is if you have a vague idea of a drug to look that up on top space, but generally speaking, look at the QRS and the QT intervals. Yeah, great. I was going to say Talkspace is a really useful tool if you know what they've potentially taken or the kind of broader category because the information on there is really in-depth so you can just print it all out and then run through it in a really logical way. And just just on that note, as a brief interlude, you can always get free access to Talkspace using an NHS email account, even if you're in a hospital that is not on the desktop, you know, you can register yourself for free with your NHS email account and indeed get the app on your personal phone again for free with your NHS email account. Excellent. That's a really good tip for anyone that doesn't have it on their phone or computer already. And how can we lower this temperature? Because they're often really high temperatures, aren't they, that the patients have? Yeah, absolutely. And the higher they are, the worse the prognosis. So the main focus, as I say, should be on lowering that temperature. Treatment-wise, toxicology in general is a relatively evidence-free zone. There's not a lot of, you know, a lot of it's based on case reports and based on experience of previous incidents with patients. And so there's limited treatment options, I would have to say, that we have, but we do have some treatment options. So first and foremost is simplistic, obvious things like trying to cool the patient in a physical way. So ice, cold fluids, intravascular cooling, that kind of thing. Clearly, that's not going to happen on a normal acute admission ward. So to go back to your scenario you presented at the start, if you're finding this patient in an acute admissions unit and they have a temperature of 39 in the context of drugs and potential serotonin toxicity, that is an absolute indication for a critical care referral. So everything that I'm about to say after this point for the treatment of these patients is assuming they're already in critical care. It's simply by establishing the fact that you've got a hyperparexial tox patient actually means you should be making that referral. So get them up to critical here as i say the physical the obvious cool fluids fans ice trying to cool the patient benzodiazepines actually are the drug with the most evidence behind them for use in these patients and obviously benzodiazepines have some great effects in terms of reducing agitation reducing tachycardia that will reduce the blood pressure and just generally allowing you to manage the patient in a safe and effective manner. Interestingly, there's animal studies to show that benzodiazepines can independently reduce temperature in animal models of serotonin toxicity. And so we would advise all of these patients to go to be heavy use of benzodiazepines, such as midazolam infusion, for instance, when they're up in critical care. It goes without saying, obviously, to stop all potentially exacerbating drugs. Now, if the patient's taken a street drug in the community, then obviously, hopefully, they're not going to be taking any more of that in hospital. But clearly, you want to stop any therapeutic agents that potentially might potentiate serotonin toxicity or indeed not start any more. Now, the reason I say that is that often patients that go to critical care 
end up on, for example, fentanyl within their ICU management. And fentanyl is associated with serotonin syndrome. So you often get these patients who you're treating and actually you're kind of, you're treating, but also making the picture worse as well by starting a drug that could potentially exacerbate the clinical picture. So it's important not to start anything else. So we would stop everything and put them on a, for example, a morphine and midazolam infusion to try and control the temperature and bring that down and using all the physical cooling methods that we can as well. A couple of other potential treatments that are worth considering. There's a drug called ciproheptadine, which is a 5-HT2 antagonist. So serotonin antagonist. So logic would tell you that given the problem of serotonin overdrive, if you give a patient a serotonin antagonist, then that would have a beneficial effect. It does have some reasonable evidence behind it. I wouldn't say it's the be-all and end-all. It's often quite a difficult drug to locate. It's used more commonly for a migraine and things like that. The slight problem with it, it's only available orally. And obviously these patients are more often than not intubated. Um, and so we'd normally give it via an NG tube but it doesn't really have any significant adverse effects. So we'd often add this drug in to the mix in terms of the management. So patients will often end up being cooled, aggressively cooled, be on a midazolam infusion and have ciproheptadine as well. And then one final drug I would like to mention is chlorpromazine. So chlorpromazine does have some evidence behind it. It's a serotonin antagonist as well. So, you know, in theory, it would work in the same way. Unfortunately, it works on a whole load of other receptors as well, meaning it's got a number of adverse effects. And one of its main difficulties is that it causes quite significant hypotension, particularly when it's administered intravenously. So the advantage of ciproheptadine in this case is there is an IV preparation of chlorobazine that we can give these patients, but these patients already have quite a labile blood pressure. And so we're reluctant to give anything that might potentially drop their blood pressure. And that often precludes the use of chlorobazine. So really that's kind of it. That's the treatment options that we have. So the ones that the best evidence behind them are the actual of cooling like the ice and the cooled fluids and intravascular cooling and benzodiazepines and then really other than that it's best supportive care so treating any potential complications that might happen so the common complications in these sorts of patients are obviously acute kidney injury which unfortunately is very common rhabdomyolysis associated with that because of all the muscle hyperactivity and then potentially if they're very very sick from an uncontrolled hyperparexia for some time they can essentially develop multi-organ failure cardiovascular liver and renal failure as a result primarily of the temperature and lots of studies have shown that if we can get the temperature down quickly then we can hopefully prevent any of those secondary effects. One thing I probably will just mention just right at the very end, because it's a question we often get asked about, is dantrolene. And dantrolene obviously has a lot of evidence for a malignant hyperthermia. In the anaesthetic world, I mean, and from a sort of mechanistic point of view, there's no reason why this would work. It's sometimes given in a kind of last-ditch effort because patients are just so sick and if they have a very, very high temperature, the evidence is a bit up in the air. There's some case reports that would suggest it has some beneficial effect. There's other case reports that suggest it doesn't have any effect at all. In theory, there's no mechanistic reason why it should work, but it has been given in the past when all other options have been exhausted. Great. That's really interesting. And are there any cases where if the patients have come in and they've been in the ward for a while and they develop a kind of hypothermic toxidrome, are there any drugs that we need to look for that might have been prescribed during their stay rather than the kind of acute, they've taken something and then come in? Is there anything that can develop whilst they're in as an inpatient? 
Yeah, I mean, so if they come in and they seem relatively stable initially and then develop it further down the line, the next day, for example, if their temperature starts going up, I would probably suggest that tends to be more pointing towards the septic rule rather than the drugs. If it is a drug-related temperature, it's going to be there on presentation and it's going to be there straight away. Because let's face it, when the patient takes the drug, from that point onwards, the drug is going to be reducing. So it's very unusual for someone to be relatively okay and then start developing all these symptoms. That's far more consistent with the sepsis type picture. The one thing I would say is that tox patients often have a high white count for a number of reasons, whether that's because they might have an underlying sepsis or it's whether because they might have had a seizure or you know, a period of hyperactivity. The drug-related temperatures are not normally associated with high CRP, for example. So if they have a CRP of 200 and a temperature, it's far more likely to be sepsis than it is likely to be the drugs. But if they have a CRP of 10 or 20 and a high temperature, and both of these scenarios, they might have a white count of 19. So the white count, I would tend to just slightly take with a pinch of salt, but the inflammatory markers are more likely to be up with the sepsis whereas the temperature is much more likely to be up with drugs right at the very, very start. And as time goes on, the chances are less and less. The other thing on that note that I just remembered that I perhaps should have said right at the start is some of the old textbooks and things still say that the classic presentation of serotonin syndrome is when you're exposed to two or more drugs that affect the serotonin system. That's not always quite as obvious or as apparent as like a textbook would make it seem really obvious. It's not always like that. Sometimes there are some cases where you can get serotonin syndrome with only one apparent drug. Other times it might be, for instance, the patient is prescribed one drug such as fluoxetine and then goes and takes a recreational drug on top of that. And that's the two serotonergic drugs. So don't necessarily think there must be two or more drugs. Otherwise, this is not serotonin syndrome. It doesn't quite work like that. Fantastic. And do you ever come across neuroleptic malignant syndrome? Yeah, so that would be one of the main differentials between serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And it's one of the commonest questions, actually, that we get called when we're on for the National Poison Service, when we're the consultants on call backing up top space. On that note, I would say for any of these patients, please phone us in top space. I know that we're very quick to say top space is great, and it is absolutely fantastic. But also we can help with the management of these patients. So don't hesitate to phone with these patients. And also the other thing is that we kind of are aware of what drugs are available, perhaps in certain areas, or if there's a new drug on the scene, you know, you're not familiar with as a clinician, then we perhaps we can give that added bit of information. But to come back to the neuroleptic malignant syndrome, generally speaking, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is not really associated with overdose. It's more of an idiosyncratic reaction to someone being on the drug, a neuroleptic drug, obviously. Whereas serotonin syndrome is much more associated with recreational use or someone taking an overdose, an acute event caused by the significant ingestion of that drug. In terms of the clinical features and the sort of differentiating clinical features, a serotonergic patient is generally quite jumpy and lots of myoclonus and the clonus is, as I've been saying, a bit more jerky, whereas neuroleptic malignant syndrome patients are generally very rigid. So they're much more rigid and difficult to move. The difficulty comes when someone has very, very severe serotonin syndrome because they can almost appear so, forgive the lack of medical phrasing here, but the jerkiness becomes almost so severe that they become almost rigid. These patients will always have ocular clonus, so you can always look in their eyes and look for ocular clonus. But generally speaking, neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS is lead pipe rigidity 
but a serotonin syndrome is much more hypermobility and clonus. But they both can have temperature, they both can have rhabdo, they both can have all the other sort of secondary effects. So it sometimes can be quite difficult to differentiate the two. Fantastic. And what if you're thinking it's neuroleptic malignant syndrome instead? You'd go through all the same steps. Is there anything else that you would do for that patient? I would slightly advertise the Talkspace page in neuroleptic malignant syndrome is very good, actually. So for that, you can just type in neuroleptic malignant syndrome into Talkspace. You don't need to type in a drug to find it. And you will get the page on neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And there is a diagnostic criteria which is detailed on that page with six or seven points that you're really looking for, such as obviously temperature and high CK, etc. The broad brushstrokes of the management are roughly the same, i.e. stop the offending drug for first and foremost. But with NMS, there are a few more specific treatment options that you might consider, such as things like bromocryptine, slightly different treatment aspects that you wouldn't consider ciproheptidine, for example, in NMS. So there are some differences, but the broad brushstrokes of what you initially do in terms of assessing the patient on the ward is all the same, i.e. stop the drug, very good high supportive treatment, lots of fluids to try and prevent any acute kidney injury and all the rest of it. And again, these patients should be managed in a critical care setting. So all that initial stuff is very much the same. And then if there's any diagnostic uncertainty regarding these patients, I would advise giving us a phone and we can talk through you know, sometimes it's very, very challenging to determine the difference. There are some cases that it is extremely challenging, but I would advise giving us a call and we can talk through it together to try and work out what the best treatment option would be. Fantastic. So just to round things up, really, before we end, is there any top tips that you want to give people if they come across a patient and they're worried about hypothermic toxidrome? So top tips would be keep a very close eye on the temperature at all times. A temperature at all in a patient who has taken drugs is generally always bad news and don't just assume it's sepsis. They may well have sepsis, as we've talked about during this, if they've got high CRP or all that, for instance, but I'd be very worried about a patient with a temperature and we should be looking to try and get the temperature down as quickly as possible. A quick note about top screens. Top screens can be helpful down the line, but as you probably know, they take a couple of days to often to come back. So they're not going to change your initial management, but we do find that to be quite helpful in the overall management of the patient and can have some positive things to add to the management a couple of days down. But So by all means, send a top screen, but it's not going to change your actual management. Key things are involve critical care very early, even if their temperature doesn't appear to be that high. If it's just over 38, it may be significantly on the way up. Check it regularly. Benzodiazepines are the toxicologist's favourite drug. Always give a little bit of benzodiazepines and you may need increasing doses of benzodiazepines. And if the temperature continues to rise and they need active cooling and transfer to critical care. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr Sandlins, for coming on today's podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate that chat. So thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>